0: Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 13th of December. I was planning to stay up late tonight so that I could incorporate the result, or at least the trend, of the general election in this episode. Then I realised that by the time you listen to this, you'll know far more than I might do at midnight on Thursday. So we'll talk about the election next time. Aside from the election news, on the sustainability front, Australia is still ablaze. COP25, the United Nations Climate Conference, draws to a close this week with criticisms and complaints. Greta Thunberg says the school strikes have achieved nothing. And some in Scotland are having a grouse uh, about grouse moors. But apart from all this, Whatever we do to our world, we are going to have to live in it. And it's important to make the very best of it. There are lessons we can learn from nature. I recently heard a presentation by Richard James McCowan, who is the founder and managing director of Biomimicry UK. In the conference brochure, it said, Richard is a real estate consultant and designer, having worked across Europe on projects from billion-dollar asset transfers to new developments. His passion for all things biomimetic and problem-solving started in his youth, and it has never stopped since then. This has led to unexpected clients and opportunities with the BBC, luxury hotels, and even running a workshop in a nudist colony in the Balkans. He never told us about that in the presentation, but I was able to catch up with him later and we discussed a whole range of things. Well, what I wanted to ask you about, Richard, biomimicry, biomimetics, bionics, biophilic, Mm -hmm. All these words which we came across uh, when you did a presentation last week. But something that also caught my attention, because you were doing your presentation in the context of sustainability, is you said in your introductory notes, most organisations have now adopted the use of sustainability as the best of the worst. Would you like to comment on that?
1: Yeah, because I think a lot of it is companies not really understanding what sustainability is really is mm-hmm. they've kind of adopted thinking we'll push the environmental agenda by ignoring the fact that it could be still be modern slavery down the supply chain or even into the, the workers and factories and they're not understanding that so they're not taking it as a whole by either looking at all the sustainable development goal angles or even the simplified version of looking at the environmental um, economic and the social aspects and that's the, the big thing because people think it's insular
0: but everything's connected mm-hmm. we have a green supply chain and we yeah. It's strength is the weakest link, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So tell me a bit more about biomimicry. I've, I've looked at the website, and I realised that there's an awful lot more than you had time to tell us about last week, and that biomimicry is an international movement. Is that right? Is that fair enough?
1: Yeah, it's really come to the forefront now, because we're understanding biology more. We've got the computing power to analyse it, and really go down to even down to the quantum level. Mm-hmm. And it's giving us an under greater understanding of how things are working. So then that therefore that's allowing scientists to write more research into it, and there's allowing that to then be transferred into your design and engineering and materials science. So you're seeing it slowly but surely coming through, and there's a lot more people actually looking into the processes as well, because for designers they need a solid process to can uh, continually develop new ideas instead of just coming
0: up with you
1: know the one hit wonder. Right. Now is
0: this Another name for nanotechnology, or is that part of it? Or well, that's
1: part of it, but there's so much more when you're looking at systems processing for computers, new materials, you know, not at the nano scale, um, even down to processes in chemical engineering. Yeah. All the way through, and then all the way through to how does the building work, you know, in our architectural sense.
0: Right. So, if I understand it correctly, you are looking at how nature accomplishes structures and other things and looking to see if that can be replicated or harnessed for what we want to create.
1: Yeah, how nature solves problems. Mm-hmm. And if, if it's overcome it and then not just one species has found a way to do that, but multiple, then there's obviously a very strong success strategy there. And if you look at our design problems, the way we've solved it, once you find one way of solving a problem, multiple people do that as well. You look at mobile phones and, and you know smartphones. Yeah. Everybody's jumped in the same bandwagon, but if you think about that, the multiple hundreds and hundreds of thousands of species have, say, um, solved streamlining under the water or flight. It's the same example. Mm -hmm. Then you look at the ones that have solved it in the way that can be most easily replicated for your um, design challenge.
0: Right. Yes, you mentioned uh, termites as a natural 3D printer. And 3D printing, of course, is becoming more and more. Common and the range of materials that we can use in 3D printing is, is broadening. The thing about that sort of technique is that we use far less material. Previously we used to get a big block of metal and cut something out of it. Now we just get the material we need and we deposit it. So those are the sorts of things that you would take from nature. Oh definitely, because you
1: can start learning from not just how do they construct for say, the building technologies passive ventilation but yeah into 3D printing as well because effectively millions of termites act like a 3D printer they've got very little information but they're building and adding bits together and taking bits where they don't need it so it's effectively that program there and um, there's even some um, crazy research coming out where they're actually looking at incorporating 3D printing and termites together to see how they work not see the usefulness of that if, um, at the <laughs> moment bec- but it's understanding this kind of um, collaboration between nature and technology because mm-hmm. it, it might show a way of how do they work, because how do they create these vast structures that allow airflow to move around with a key ingredient being that they like, especially in Namibian uh, termites, like 80% humidity mm-hmm. so they control it to that humidity level and then the certain fungus and bacteria that are in the hives, in the nests sorry, that stop the spread of other ones
0: Now, I've seen from the website you work with a wide range of organisations. So you've mentioned building construction. What other areas have you applied or are you able to apply biomimicry to?
1: One area um, that we're exploring with um, university partners they brought us in is looking at drone technology, micro drones based on how dandelions um, float through the air. So you You can make a micro drone that doesn't have an engine. Right. Which then would allow you to drop these over, say, areas of, you know, famine, war, nuclear disaster, even looking into weather patterns, you know, say dropping over a hurricane and these very, very small sensors would then be blown around and they could travel vast distances and checking the, uh, you know, the weather, because, um, you know, there's some instances of um, dandelion burrs flowing all the way from Scandinavia to the UK. Really? Cause effectively, if you take off the little seed at the bottom, these things can actually float. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they float through the air almost forever because they create a little vortex of air above them a bit like a smoke ring right. and it's, it just sits above the little umbrella and it allows them, to basically have a negative pressure and it allows them to float around, it's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Replicate the actual, the um, little umbrella, mm-hmm. uh, manufacture that and then put in micro-sensors for a variety of applications.
0: Right, well we've got a climate crisis at the moment. How do you see this sort of thing helping us to deal with it? I mean there are two aspects, of course there's mitigation to try and stop it getting worse, but something which people aren't talking about quite as much, although it's almost equally important, is adaptation. In other words, dealing with the problems which are already built into the climate system. Do you see biomimicry as giving us assistance in either of those areas? I mean one of the big areas that's um, really
1: pushing um, and a lot of other people who practice biomimicry is regenerative design. Through architecture, um, agriculture, and you know even business practices, how can you do, you know regenerate the areas that you're working in, whether it's upstream or downstream in your supply chains or where the building sits, and you can, by looking to the natural world you can learn about using um, low cost solutions, using less material because in the natural world energy is expensive, mm-hmm. so they have to um, conserve that as much as possible, and using materials in a more um, resilient manner. So instead of getting multiple materials, if you look around wherever you are and look at the multiple materials that have got singular functions, imagine creating buildings out of one material but it does different things depending on the thickness or how it's used. If we can do that, um, built into kind of a circular economy model, we can actually come up with wasting less. You're tapping into as much free energy as possible, bringing in the natural world, how's the building? You're creating a living building that allows in that nature to actually be part of it because the big thing we're creating at the moment is dead zones for you know, insects and birds in cities. Right, yes. So we can build them into our buildings. Not every building has got green roofs or green walls, but having small spaces, it doesn't need to be on the ground. We can start thinking differently. And these yeah. stepping stones throughout cities. Right. Because cities will be the drivers of change, not the rural areas. I mean, as much, and the agriculture is important, but we've got so many people there and so much energy being used. If we can change the way that we use them in a lot more... And um, less energy-intensive way,
0: right? Why do you call this regenerative? Because
1: it's doing it's doing more good. It's actually can you use that to heal the environment? Mm-hmm. So think about um, you know reestablishing habitats or creating a green infrastructure network, say through a city like York that um, allows for you know species migration as you know the climate gets warmer, because animals are moving, animals are moving further and further north. Yeah. Or in some cases it might be further south. So wherever you are, you're ne- you know, in the hit cities, and it's a dead zone. Where do they move round? You mm-hmm. can even start looking at low cost, you know, um, you know, solutions for you know flood remediation and things like mm-hmm. working with the water instead of just using hevo- heavy civil engineering solutions. We don't need to pour more concrete. You know, make the water. Example in New York or anywhere else that's got lots of flooding. You know. You solve the problem in New York, but then you cause worse downstream. Why not build in soft landscaping that allows the water to
0: flow? Mhm. Yes, or or you build something further upstream which spreads the water and slows it down.
1: Yeah, yeah. or even you know, reestablishing peat bogs. Yeah. Up at the source, and that will yeah. Yeah. you know that's the sponge that will soak up more of the water instead of so let it running off downstream.
0: Right. Well, the implications of this sort of thing are quite enormous, and really there are sorts of things that should be done at least local authority level, possibly even government level. What are the signs that this sort of approach is understood, accepted, supported by the people who've really got the power to implement it?
1: we see more and more, um, especially in the UK, local authorities adopting nature-based solutions in the circular economy um, to well, they're, they're looking at one as part of the climate crisis and two you know, as an economic model. Um, one area we're actually working o- on and I'm actually on the advisory board for is a Climate Kick network. So Climate Kick is a European funded network mm-hmm. looking at climate solutions and this is one of the first that's um, a network instead of project based and we're, we've got 20 cities signed up across Europe and we're looking at bringing in another 40 by this time next year, so by the end of two thousand and twenty. To have 60, but it's a three-year project, so until 2022, mm-hmm. we're going to have as many as possible, and it's about creating, not just writing reports, getting things done, learning best practice from, say, Milan that can be transferred into Manchester or Glasgow and vice versa, and actually knowledge sharing as
0: well. Okay. So in terms of public spaces or in terms of building regulations, or, or what, sort of, what sort of things have a synergy between all these cities? You'd be looking
1: at um, how, if, you know, if, if you say Manchester is going to get warmer like Milan in 15 yeah. years, why not learn how they adapted also to their changing yeah. climate? Yeah. You know, yeah. Or if they've got, same what river kind of um, layout and, and, you know, ecosystems, how can you adapt things that they've already done? Or your best practice in creating startups and that kind of model as well, so we're looking at bringing in financers as well to fund the next generation of new ideas. Hmm.
0: Is it adaptable to a city like York, for example, which has got a tremendous amount of he- heritage and a lot of restrictions on what you can do with the ancient buildings? Well, that's where you start looking
1: around and where can you actually work if you're putting in green walls or different types of agriculture. Mm. You know, we can't just think about agriculture like you know traditional farming, looking at vertical farming, if they're even temporary spaces. What if there's a warehouse being converted, uh, you know, it's going through planning or something, and we've got Two years, you can set up a mushroom farm or indoor um, agriculture, urban agriculture, that could be quickly set up and then dismantled and put somewhere else. Yeah. You know, we can start looking into, you know, um, making more ecotones, which is kind of um soft edges along the river, where it is um canalised or you know, it's heavy infrastructure, that putting in plants can then filter the water. There's a company called Biometric Solutions mm-hmm. that already do that, mm-hmm. and then because of the bacteria and these pontoons you're filtering and taking the nutrients out, you're also then creating habitats for um, birds and fish yes, and insects yeah. as well. Yeah. So there's multiple things, So you know, even using algorithms based on the natural world to look at flow of transport.
0: Yes, well that is a big big question isn't it because transport is not only a question of getting people from A to B, it's a question of the energy that you use to achieve that and it does raise questions as to whether all the journeys are really necessary and whether you can circumvent them with Better communications, for example.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, how many people you know, use the cars for five minute journeys? You know, we are yeah. s- lucky to see you know um, more and more last mile deliveries done by um, cargo bikes. Yeah. And are we going to get more small? You know, if it's slightly bigger, do you need some electric tricycles or things like that? And I think that'll be very useful. Yes. Um, changing the way people do things, and I think one of the biggest things is getting people to stop buying stuff. Over buying food and over buying, you know, clothing and just things, we're coming up to Christmas and um, people just buy things for the sake of it. Do we need to?
0: Yeah, they said that Black Friday was a had a record turnover this year, didn't they? Really, to achieve this sort of thing, though, we've got therefore to do an awful lot of attitude change. Our friend uh, Philip Bolson said that his clients like to park their big cars outside his hotel because they want them seen. It's probably a psychological need, and how are we going to get around that? It's interesting, but you
1: look to like somewhere like California, and you know, all the, the the movement there with a lot of celebrities all driving, you know, electric cars now. Yeah. So maybe that will catch up. Um, yes, people are always going to buy cars, but if you get the masses thinking about changing ownership models, you know, why does everybody need a car? I personally don't have a car anymore. My wife does. I cycle everywhere, and if I do need to get a car, more I'll join a car club, yeah. and I can occasionally use that because it's one a car. have to sit there for ninety nine percent of the time doing yeah. nothing, just yeah. to, you know, it's not like I'm buying a McLaren P One that's going to go up in value, um, and I probably wouldn't drive that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's going to depreciate in value, so what's the point? But here's an interesting thing: even car manufacturers are looking at the kind of life cycle analysis of car manufacturing now. How can we? stop polluting the planet as much through everything from the supply chain, the design all the way to uh, the disassembly.
0: Hmm. But there's a tremendous amount of inertia, isn't there? Because it provides jobs, uh, as well as providing things that people currently want. It's going to be very, very difficult to wind down the, 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 the motor industry, just as it's going to be difficult, although it's probably going to happen to wind down the oil industry.
1: Oh, there's going to be tipping points. The oil industry knows when the you know the environmental benefits of using uh, and the financial benefits of using um, you know clean energies coming up, mm-hmm. um, and it it'll, it'll get there. It would actually get there quicker if we took a lot of the um, you know
0: the, the tax benefits that they get from um, you know producing oil. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, yes. And the tax benefits or the tax restrictions on using cars, because in this country at least uh, they've been relaxed very much, haven't they? So that uh, you drive, you drive a big car, you don't really get penalised as much as you used to be.
1: I think it's it's back to what you said. It's back to behaviour change, getting people yeah. thinking yeah. a bit more. And if the car owners themselves, maybe their children need to start pushing the agenda with them a bit more. Mm. Mm. I think that it's, it's getting them thinking. Why do I need to take the car? Why do I need to? It's the thing is.
0: People want, 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 but they really don't know what they need. Do you think that we will change behaviour sufficiently rapidly to actually achieve what we need to do in terms of managing climate change? Well, that's a loaded question.
1: As I say, I'm I'm hopeful. But here's the kicker that we tend to do. We're very reactive as a species, Mm. and... I am seeing it a bit like in in wars or massive famines. We react to situations instead of being more proactive. Yes, we've got a lot of push, but we keep seeing the targets moving every mm. um you know few years to two thousand thirty, then 2040, 2050. I think certain countries will. Yeah, but it's the ones that say they are doing stuff, and then you see secretly behind the scenes they're not doing it. You know, so um, a lot of Asian countries are. Got a very strong green agenda, yeah. but they're still building, building um, coal powered and
0: um, uh, power stations, stations. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. the classic, the classic is China because China yeah. has uh, taken a lead in many ways. There's more electric cars sold in China. There's more solar panels used and manufactured in China, and yet in the last eighteen months, they've opened coal fired power stations for about fifty gigawatts, which is a lot and apparently there's 149 gigawatts in the pipeline. And that's, that's, well, the amount of carbon that that will release is, is just phenomenal. Uh, well, unsustainable, that's the important thing, isn't it? Why would governments do these things which the scientists can tell them with pretty good certainty are going to actually damage our planet irreparably? I think it's because a lot of people...
1: Can't see the damage going on. We're um, the Guardian have recently changed how they report mm. climate change by showing pictures of people and not showing pictures of polar bears. Oh well, that's or that's penguins because you cannot. See how many people have been to either poles? Mm. You know how many people have been to the Amazon and seen the destruction. You need to sh- show people how it's affecting their everyday. Um, You know, commute or where they where they live. You know, how are you know we're getting extreme flooding every year. That's the kind of thing we need to change how we sell the story. But we also need to start showing there is hope and actually a way to change things. I mean, I love what Extinction Rebellion are doing, but certain people just want to complain. Why don't we give them the tools to actually look at creating new solutions? Mm -hmm. Because well, maybe that's just me personally because I like solving problems. But if we can come up with lots of these. um, solutions and start doing it and then really ramming home how easy it is to do and how because that's the thing as a species as humans are we're inherently not lazy, easy but we like um, controlling how much energy we have through yeah. our sugars and so we do the simplest things that's why opinion based articles have come across a lot easier than scientific papers because they're easier to understand it takes less brain power mm-hmm. so we need to get everything across and the message everyone understands we need to get the uh, marketing agencies Writing stuff and promoting the stuff is easily accessible as they do selling candy bars.
0: Yeah, but before they can do that, we've got to know what the proper solutions are. Are you saying that Extinction Rebellion should not just complain but should actually promote solutions?
1: Yeah, they should start helping. You know, I think there's got to be a group together. Let's looking at a solution base as well. I mean, Paul Hawkins got a great one with his project drawdown with mm. multiple ways to um, look at um, mitigating you know the climate catastrophe we're in. Why not? have Extinction Rebellion and other groups pushing more of
0: these as well. Yeah, but Extinction Rebellion I think would say it's not their role, it's the role of the government, the government has the power and they must assemble the experts and and, and provide the solutions, Um, because if XR puts forward a solution which is wrong, that sort of uh, destroys them completely, doesn't it? Well, yeah, maybe it's
1: totally different things, aren't they? Oh, yeah, I think it's. I mean, it shouldn't be them just to say, right, this is our solution. Mm. I think they should just say, well, here's lots of ways that people are looking at solving problems. Right, okay. I think, you know, start piggybacking with other uh, organisations that yeah. are doing things and actually yeah. coming up with
0: solutions. I think that'd be a great way to do it. Yeah. And there are okay. lots of them out there. Yeah, but they need more PR, don't they? Yeah. Because they're not tremendously visible. Um, not in the UK, anyway. As far as our media is concerned, it's. Um, it's not that a high profile. It's There was this climate debate, wasn't there, on Channel 4 recently. Um, not many people watched it, apparently.
1: Well, I didn't watch it.
0: No, oh, I watched it on catch-up. I uh, thought I ought to. But no. I,
1: I mean, I read about it, but I think I just um, were bombarded with too much of the politics at the moment. It's kind of the, it's the hangover from Trump of every, <laughs> every second. a kind of a, a new media event, and it's yeah. getting to the point where, you know, somebody I know is a friend of mine that works in environmental industries, so I've
0: got better things to do than listen
1: to politicians slag each other
0: off. That was a very noticeable aspect of that. It was politicians slagging each other off, not politicians saying, hey we've got a problem, we must work together to solve it. That is the worst worrying thing. Second only to the fact that the Prime Minister didn't think it was worth turning up for. Is it important? If he's the guy who can do something about it. Now I've been asking a number of people to Give me a hundred words on what we should do in 2020. That puts you on the spot, on not it? But we have this climate crisis. We, we are beginning, I think just in the last 12 months, to realise that it is a serious crisis, that it is an emergency. So we've got a new year starting in just over three weeks. What should we do? Where's our priority?
1: I would say it was for the late person, at hope. Let's start in your back garden. Instead of buying all those plants that soak up lots and lots of water, go and find, you know, um, me your neighbours have been there a long time and they've got plants that don't need a lot of watering, or ones that soak up a lot of water if you get a lot of rain, and plant more of them. Mm -hmm. Because then you don't need to water your garden as much, and it allows the reservoirs to keep stock of the water. Okay. That's a thing that people could do in spring. The other one is, I don't actually say because I work in, you know, environmental, I mean, biomimicry, I actually start looking a bit more biased. um, magnifying glass and start understanding how the natural world works, understand the complexity, but understand the, the way it can do things without using as much energy. Watch how the insects pollinate your garden and how they're not going to every single flower and then they'll fly off because they can't expend all their energy. And think about that way when you start you know, doing your own um, your daily lives.
0: Richard, thank you very much for that. That's a lot of very interesting ideas. Well, thank you, Anthony, for having me. Thank you. Richard McCowan of Biomimicry UK. Find out more on his website, bio-uk.org. We need nature, but nature in some parts of Australia is under severe threat. The fires that I reported weeks ago are still burning and are now being called too big to put out. They're covering an area equivalent to the size of Greater Sydney, and they're not that far from Sydney. Sydney. Temperatures were expected to reach 43 degrees centigrade this week. The city is choked with smoke and air quality has exceeded hazardous levels on several occasions. This has led to a 10% rise in hospital admissions while paramedics have treated hundreds of people for breathing problems. There are air quality problems from bushfire smoke in Adelaide as well. Firefighters say there is no hope of putting the fires out because everything is so dry. All they can do is wait for rain, which is not expected before late January or February. We spoke about water vapour last time and how warmer air can hold more of it. This means that when it finally condenses into clouds and then turns into rain, the downpours are excessively heavy. But on the other hand, it means that where clouds rise to heights which would normally trigger rainfall, it's not cold enough, so the clouds move on, leaving drought behind them. As we warm the atmosphere, we change weather patterns. All these fires must be putting tons of CO2 into the atmosphere, but at the same time they're killing wildlife and destroying habitats. For those creatures that survive, there may be no insects or plants or prey left to live on. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has consistently said there was no credible scientific evidence linking climate change with the fires. This has been rejected by climate scientists who have said politicians are burying their heads in the sand while the world is literally burning around them. The Climate Change Performance Index rates Australia's climate policies as the worst in the world, coming 57th out of 57 countries. As we learned recently, Australia accounts for 37% of world coal exports. Shutting the mines would devastate the economy overnight. Equally, shutting the mines would not stop climate change, or the droughts, or the fires. It's a necessary but not sufficient action for controlling the climate crisis, which depends on actions by governments and corporations across the world. The effect of humanity on the environment has built up over the last 200 years or so, and particularly in the last 50. The effect of cutting CO2 emissions... And extracting CO2 from the atmosphere will take centuries, if not millennia, to work through. Somehow we need to sell the necessity of immediate action to deliver long-term security, but no immediate return. You can understand why politicians would prefer to believe that climate change is just not happening. It's not just in Australia that the mining industry is resisting calls to curtail its operations. Friends of the Earth warned that the International Energy Charter Treaty could be used by fossil fuel companies to challenge countries' climate regulations. The original objective of the treaty was to protect Western energy companies as they started to invest in former Soviet states, and the organisation is certainly not without teeth. The most notorious case, involving the Russian Yukos company, ended with a $50 billion judgment. COP25 closes this week. That's the United Nations conference taking place in Madrid. And it closes after this edition has been published. But already there's much news. The general message is that not enough is being done quickly enough and corporations and countries are dragging their feet, if not deliberately hampering progress. Johan Rockström, joint director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, said... We are at risk of getting so bogged down in incremental technicalities at these negotiations that we forget to see the forest for the trees. An example is the position of China, Saudi Arabia, India, and Brazil on the use of the term climate urgency. They claim that since the phrase has not been used in the past, it cannot be used now. Other delegates are frustrated at this insistence on a triviality in the face of the science, of the shrinking time to act. And the realization across the world of this emergency in 2015 countries signed up to the paris agreement and are due to put new plans on the table to run from 2020. the richer countries were supposed to undertake specific carbon cutting actions in the years between 2015 and 2020 but many haven't yet achieved these targets negotiators have ignored the central question of increasing country pledges during this conference country pledges to cut their carbon And they've concentrated instead on protecting national interests there are two contentious issues loss and damage and carbon markets the conference is setting out to establish a new scheme for carbon trading but some countries notably brazil want to carry forward carbon credits that were generated under previous schemes this would limit the efforts needed by brazil to meet its targets but it's claimed that these old credits do not in fact represent real carbon reductions, so their use is not justified. If old credits are allowed, there's little point in having a new scheme. Loss and damage has been on the agenda since the conference opened. Poorer and developing countries affected by sea level rise or major storms that have a climate component are looking for support and assistance from richer countries. Richer countries are afraid of being held liable for billions of dollars indefinitely. You've probably heard that Greta Thunberg has been nominated as Time Magazine's Person of the Year 2019. It's as much about Time Magazine as about Greta, but the publicity must be welcome for the climate cause. In the past, Greta has been dismissive of praise and awards. What she wants is action. Speaking at the summit in Madrid this week, she urged world leaders to stop using creative PR to avoid real action. She also said that the school strikes for the climate over the past year had achieved nothing because greenhouse gas emissions have continued to rise. In the four years since the Paris Agreement, global emissions have risen by 4%. Meanwhile, delegates at the conference focus on the wording of documents rather than the urgency of the bigger picture. Greta complained as well about the criticism of activists and the abuse she has received. Petrol head Jeremy Clarkson surprised everyone when he said that climate change must be real because he found that he couldn't take a boat up the Mekong River in Cambodia because parts of it had dried up. It didn't take long for him to revert to type and say that Greta should shut up and go back to school. She told activists in Madrid that we needed more activists. That school strike could stop if governments took action and she hoped that there would be a positive outcome from COP25 as ministers from across the world arrived for the final stages of the summit. She didn't look optimistic, but she always looks determined. At the other end of the age range, 82-year-old actress Jane Fonda has joined the climate activists and been arrested four times. She says that she's inspired by Greta Thunberg and that climate activism has helped lift her depression which followed the election of Donald Trump. The United Kingdom lies a few hundred miles north of Madrid and large areas of northern England and Scotland are pretty barren. There are very few trees and much of the landscape is bog and heather populated by sheep. Although this countryside has looked like this for 200 years or more, it's not natural. It's managed like this for grouse shooting. An activity which uses 13 percent of the land area of scotland but contributes a negligible amount to scotland's economy a report from revive the coalition for grouse Moor reform claims that continued management of this land as grouse moors will maintain a large area of scotland's land in an impoverished state it's treated with pesticides contaminated with lead shot and parts are burned each year so that the heather puts out new shoots that the grouse feed on. This close to sterile landscape could be returned to scrub and woodland with habitat for a wide range of wildlife, opportunities for year round leisure activities and managed forestry with associated jobs. The trees would be a carbon sink, but protecting the peat bogs, already a massive carbon sink, would be far more important. To achieve this of course would need political will and cooperation from those that own the land. Politicians may well choose easier battles to fight. I fear the Scottish landowners will be every bit as obdurate and obstructive as the coal companies. And finally, some good news. Well, reasonably good news anyway. The Times reports that the UK market share for greener cars rose above 10% for the first time in November, according to the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders. Demand for hybrids rose by 15%, to 7038 compared to the same month last year plug-in hybrids increased by 34.8 percent to 4362 and battery electric cars rose by 229 percent to 4652 229 percent but then that's a very low base and that's just 4652 vehicles out of a total of some hundred and sixty thousand and is the car petrol or electric the way to go I think that's a question for another time and that's it for another sustainable futures report remember that links to the sources for all these stories are on the blog or they'll will be by Friday next week I'll bring you a more measured response to the results of the UK election to the outcome of cop25. And there'll be a look at how we can adapt to the climate change already built into the system. That'll be my last episode of 2019, bringing us up to 45 editions for the year. So you won't be surprised that there will be a break in January. I'm aiming for a third of January episode, although precious few have come back with 100 words on what we should do in 2020. Send me your ideas, mail at anthony-day.com. Before Christmas, if you possibly can. If you're contemplating a new year's resolution, okay, I know Christmas hasn't even started yet, but if you are, why not become a patron of the Sustainable Futures Report? Details at patreon.com/sfr, p a t r e o n.com/sfr. Makes an ideal Christmas present, too. Right, that's enough for this time. But before I go, lest we forget Extinction Rebellion hunger strikers are now in their third week with nothing but water and vitamins. Some people have immense courage, and they're doing this for you and me. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'll be back next week in time to wish you a Merry Christmas.